Hi, Tobias Carlisle here. I've launched a new firm called Acquirers Funds. We implement the Acquirers Multiple in a highly liquid, tax-efficient and capital-efficient way. If you'd like to learn more, go to acquirersfunds.com. Hi, I'm Tobias Carla. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Adam Butler of Resolve Asset Management. He's the author of Adaptive Asset Allocation, and he's one of the deepest thinkers on investing. We're going to talk to him right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Yeah, so so um, like you say, um, I started out thinking that I was going to ha- solve this market problem by outwitting the market by understanding um the prevailing macro forces and and just by having a better grasp of the the underlying dynamics and the um the major players and their incentives and sort of wargaming it that i was going to be able to um be in the right sectors the right geographies the right asset classes the right time um, without any sense of risk management or um, diversification or, you know, most of the principles that I now hold most dear. Um, and, you know, it, it took a frying pan to the face and, and <laughs> after the tech bubble, an, another one uh, in 2008 to, um, to really cement the idea that I wasn't going to be able to do this on my own because I'm smarter, faster, braver, whatever. Um, and um, I almost left the business after 2008 because, you know, when you when you get into investing because you you believe that the value that you have to add is in is in generating alpha, and then the whole framework that you built to create alpha was was proven to be a dangerous facade, then you're left going, well, you know, I probably don't really have any right to do this. <laughs> and uh, so I had a bit of an ex- existential crisis and and really explored other potential directions. You know, I went into university, I wanted to be um, a psychiatrist and eventually I became disillusioned with the medical approach to brain science and and wanted to go into psychology and i didn't discover markets really until my my third year i'd never been exposed to markets i, I grew up in a medical family so that was just never part of um my conversation or my world growing up and, and i kind of stumbled into it in third year and and um so you know i went back to that do i want to go back to medical school do i want to go into law school what, what didn't you like about medical about the medical approach to science well, it was specifically the medical approach to um, brain science, brain health, right? And I'm not necessarily talking about um, n- neuropharmacology so much as well. It was it was the emphasis on neuropharmacology rather than 
uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and um, other more positive treatment plans uh, or approaches to, to emotional and brain health that I feel and felt at the time that people should focus on uh, and give a much broader opportunity to work uh, before resorting to pharmacological um, and surgical solutions. So, you know, I, I felt at the time, and I think that this is, this dynamic has probably moderated over the last decade or so, but I felt at the time that the go-to in psychiatry was almost immediately to pharmacological intervention. And uh, there were just a wide variety of steps that we should take before we go there. And and I, th I think the psychiatric profession has come a long way in embracing some of the uh, empirical findings out of the, the psychology literature. And, and I think there's a, a meeting of minds there. Um, how, how did you get exposed to the markets? When did that actually happen? I actually can't point to a catalyst. I can point to it exactly what it was. Uh, I remember having a conversation with a family friend who is a, a, a broker at a big Canadian uh, wealth management shop over Christmas. And this was, this was probably Christmas in my second year of university. And I came back and was just really curious about how this whole thing worked. And I started reading the business pages and looking at the stock tables. And, you know, I, I don't know how many other people follow this learning trajectory. I think it's the hardest learning trajectory. But, you know, I uh, I started watching the moves and I started noticing that there were these small cap stocks that would jump by you know, they would, they would double in, in a week or two weeks. And, you know, I started zeroing in on the fact that these were typically kind of little mining stocks or little venture stocks. And so then I started doing a little poking around on those. And where did you start poking around on those in those days? Well, the stock bulletin boards. And, and uh, so I started trading based on some of the, the rumors and comments and stock bulletin boards. And, and I ended up making a little money only because, you know, I was only going long and it was a it was a mining junior mining bull market. So you could throw darts and make money. And then the you know, because I made a little bit of money, I mean, like a few hundred bucks, I got really cocky because I I get cocky really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and I went to my friend's parents and I said, you know, you should try this. There's, there's lots of really cool stuff going on. And. So they ended up giving me a few thousand bucks. This is the, my roommates in my house in university. And then I ended up giving them back about half of what they had given me about six <laughs> months later. So that was my first. But, you know, I, I, I was far from learning any meaningful lessons just from that outcome. So th this is this at some stage, he, there's a you enter into a trading competition run. I did. Yeah, uh, that was in my third year. There was a national trading competition that TD Bank had put on their, they had just launched their online discount brokerage. And so they had set up this competition where you were granted this illusory million dollars and you could trade stocks and options long short um, using exactly the same kind of commission structure and borrowing and margin structure that you would use on their platform. And you had to see how, how far you could grow this in six months. And so, you know, I basically just traded far out of the money tech options, uh, calls and puts for six months 
and ended up turning a million bucks into like 1.6 or something. I actually can't remember. You know, actually, now that I think about it, I think we started with a half a million, not even, it wasn't even a million. It was a half a million. And I think I turned it into 1.2 or something in the first competition. It was just, you know, you take on as much leverage as you can and, and hope for some luck. And I, I did have a lot of luck. If you were if you were given the same competition parameters now, would you do exactly the same thing? No, I think I'd probably um, go the other way, and um, I would probably seek to short as much fall as possible because the um, the, the you know short short fall is enormously profitable most of the time, uh, so. You know, if you just happen to get lucky and be in a period where you don't get your head handed to you by by being uh, shortfall, then it's a it's a really nice surefire way to deliver really high returns in a short period of time. Um, uh, I mean, the, the the problem is obviously that there's there's unlimited downside. So when you do get your head handed to you, then uh, it's a a life altering event uh, unless your <laughs> position size is is managed properly. But um, yeah, I mean, just off the top of my head, I think I might lean in, in that direction. How would you do it? Well, I was thinking I'd probably do the same thing that you would do. I mean, it, you know that it's going to be a gamble. You know yeah. that it's, it's pure luck. So you need to maximize the movement of your portfolio. And that means probably you've got to maximize your chance of going up or down and just flip the coin and hope that it's up. Yeah. And that's, that's, but that's what I'd be doing. I'd probably find something that's whipping around and then find out of the money calls or something like that like that you know that you're gambling but that's your best chance of actually winning because there's there's no point putting it into a whole lot of big cap value names or something like that you just you can't win if you do that the only way you can win is if you risk everything that you're putting on right exactly yeah i mean the the winner is going to come from from uh, a tail event whether it's a, a, a an accumulation of small tails or you know one large positive tail event that that person is going to win so you need to put your in a, yourself in a position to to uh to win you know to, to yeah to be in the tail somehow right so whether or not that's 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 shorting uh you know sh- shorting uh, straddles or something on really high volatility stocks or you know like i like you like we were saying just just longing calls and puts uh some combination maybe did, so did you win the competition? Yeah, I, I won the first one. I entered it again, and I came third. And uh, so, really, that was that was just an enormous tailwind for the start of my career. It was entirely due to luck, and maybe a little bit of of chutzpah. And um, but you know, I I uh, then parlayed that into uh, you know a, a front page in the business section in my university paper which I got photocopies of and sent around to trading desks as I was looking That's for great. work. And um, I got written up in my, in my hometown paper as well and, and sent that around. And uh, I got a, I got a letter from the broker that I had been chatting with at TD because I was also trading my own account at the same time. And so he wrote this glowing review of, of how I approached the, the problem. And anyways, it ended up just being a really good resume building exercise in the end, but it was most of it, as, as we both know, was just completely luck. So then you, you, you start on the trading floor. Um, and what happens then? Well, I, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm God's gift to trading. Um, I have, I have no, you know, I got my CSI or like, you know, my securities course 
halfway through my first year on the desk. Um, I think deep down I felt, you know, this is all garbage. Who needs the, this this training? This is an easy game. And um, so, you know, I, I had almost no – but so, so the desk I was on was a market-making desk. We were also responsible for creating trading ideas for – the retail brokers and the um, uh, so so I spent a lot of my time kind of you know on, on Bloomberg, just looking for ideas or getting ideas from the senior members some senior members of my team and doing some research on them. Um, but then also in order to stay in the flow of the market, I was we were allowed to trade this omnibus account and so we were able to hold positions in the omnibus account. And at the time, you're allowed to hold positions in the omnibus account. And then you were allowed to offload them to um, to brokers after a after a little while, and sort of say, "Hey, listen, I, you know, I, I own some, you know, stock A, a little below the market here. You want to be a hero, and you know, you can you can take this down, call your clients, and put it on the books at at this lower price, and you're already giving your clients an instant profit here. Um, so so that was allowed at the time. It's obviously no longer allowed today. Um, but 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 also we were trading our own our own book. Uh, the omnibus account and almost no latitude to trade almost no uh, capital allocation um, in the beginning but it grew because i was i was trading well because it was a bull market in high volatility tech stocks and so i basically was just translating my experience from trading mining stocks and you know trading high out of the money uh, uh, calls and puts uh, for my trading competition just doing the same thing in this omnibus account and it was it was working out great. And I managed to accumulate. Eventually, they gave me more and more risk budget. I managed to accumulate a very large profit in the Omnibus account coming right into the teeth of the Thai bot, Russian uh, default, long term capital management crisis in the fall of 1998 and um, ended up losing it all and more and getting escorted from the uh, trading floor. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that was sort of the the third. It was the first, but it was the the first of the three major emotionally salient crises that finally led to me learning some uh, some lessons and and changing my approach. But you're skipping forward a little bit too far in time because you take a seven year sabbatical. I I took a lot of time off, and I uh, my wife and I went to Thailand for a few years, and um, you know I taught math and physics at this huge boys school in in Thailand, which was were absolutely some of the best years of my life. Absolutely love Southeast Asia. Um, we actually took uh, our kids over there. We have three children. We took our kids over there for a month, uh, a couple of marches ago um, and and can't wait to go back. But uh, and, you know, I went to learn. I learned uh, computer programming. I worked at IBM for a few years. I worked at an Internet startup. And uh, yeah, so it, I mean, it turned out that my, my university degree was in psychology and then just by virtue of making big mistakes, ended up doing um, a lot of work in programming. And then, you know, psychology really is a degree in applied statistics. So you've got applied statistics combined with programming ended up um, being a really perfect foundation for the, the sort of next phase of my career after 2008. So uh, you have the 2008 crisis and <clears throat> I, I've, I've heard you say previously that that, that is, uh, it, it's, it's a huge event because it changes the way that you think about everything. So what was the process there? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't. This is this is a lot of um, deep work, just sort of thinking about my own motivations and, and how I perceive the world and, and my general social context and um, and values context at the time. But you know, I, I think that I was persuaded as I grew up to believe that the world was a meritocracy and um, that anybody with a work ethic and the, um, and a little bit of, a little bit of smarts uh, could, could make anything happen. And I just, I, I guess I had never really been face to face with the realities of, you know, the, the, the hierarchy of wealth and the the fact that there you know there are existing social structures and wealth structures that really don't want to be disrupted and will do anything in their power to preserve their the sanctity of their uh, uh, of their status and and so I, I just wasn't prepared for the kind of interventions and the and the way that those power structures were able to get away with with perpetrating what I felt to be just um, horrible crimes against the the uh, the integrity of the financial structure, and and so, you know, it took me a long time to just to get past all that and just realize, you know, look, you're deciding to play in this sandbox. These are the rules of the sandbox. Um, if you don't like the rules, go find a new sandbox, right? And and uh, and just move on and and find some methods to both leave that behind me and then figure out how to move forward in a constructive way to add value within my chosen domain. So I've heard you say that your approach to that point had been, you thought that the machine could be understood and that you could, if you worked hard enough and if you thought about it hard enough, you could at some stage figure out where you wanted the right place to invest, the right asset class. But instead that sort of changes your thinking on the, on the whole process and you start thinking um, that that's an impossible task. So you need to be, you need to be more agnostic to your own. You need to be less certain, more agnostic to what the market could possibly do. And so part of that is you, re- you read Tetlock uh, as many of us have. Dan Rasmussen had the same story and I, I vividly, I have, I have it on my bookshelf behind there. Um, so t- talk us through that process. Well, it was at exactly the point when I was doubting whether or not I could add value within the investment domain, whether or not I could I could be a successful investor on behalf of clients that I stumbled on a, a initially a presentation that Philip Tetlock had um, given to the Long Now Foundation, of which I was a member. <clears throat> and... It was on his findings from uh, the 15-year experiment that he'd been running and that led to the publication of his book, Expert Political Judgment. And, um, you know, wherein he sort of described the the methodology of the experiment that he had conducted over many years, um, the motivation. So, you know, what led him to want to do the study that he did. And um, then... What he had concluded, and um, I found that to be just an uh, just an absolute revelation. And we can certainly get into. Yeah, the, the so let's let's do that. He was he was in the CIA, is that right? 
Um, yeah, well, he was he was certainly part of the intelligence community. He graduated with a degree, and I'm going to get a few of these facts wrong, um, but I think he, got, he graduated with a degree in uh, in applied psychology or operational psych or something like that. And he went to work in the intelligence community in Washington, and as a junior analyst, I guess he was responsible for documenting the remarks taking minutes at these intelligence meetings, and they they would come out come about. Um, on a quarterly basis or semi-annual basis, and all the bigwigs in the room, the top generals and the senior intelligence advisors would provide their opinion on what was going to happen in uh, the Russian Polyboro or, you know, uh, whatever other dominant political dynamic that was prevailing at the time. And so he'd write down their opinion and what he thought, what this senior official thought would happen. And then at, at the next meeting, he would have to read out the minutes about, you know, we're starting from here and here's where everyone thought that the world was going to be at this time. And, and then what he, what he noticed very quickly is that there was almost no relationship between what all these senior officials had predicted would happen and what had actually happened in the subsequent, in, in, in the intervening period. And um, so that, that motivated him to go back and structure this long-term study on expert judgment. And so he recruited something on the order of 200 um, experts. And again, it's been a while since I've, I've looked through this, but I, I wanna say the average education level, master's degree, average level of experience, kind of 15 years in these in their fields. So these are senior intelligence advisors. Experts. Yeah, experts, economists, journalists, et cetera, right? And then he asked them each, I think about 100 questions. So we had about 18,000 uh, forecasts that he had accumulated over about a 15-year period on a variety of different uh, topics. And so when he went back and evaluated the results, he came to a few conclusions. Uh, number one, um, experts were less well calibrated. So what does calibrated means? It means that if they say that they are 60% confident that something will happen, that on average, when they say they're 60% confident, those things happen on average about 60% of the time, right? Um, so that experts are, are less well calibrated than you would get from random guessing, that there were no outliers among the 200-odd experts. Not one of them exhibited um, a calibration that would be that was better than random guesses. In fact, most of them were substantially worse. Um, those that expressed the highest level of average confidence ended up having the least accuracy in their predictions. Um, some other stuff which I found even more interesting, the experts that were cited most often in future literature uh, or by the news media or appeared most often on radio or television were meaningfully less accurate and less calibrated than those who toil in obscurity. Um, and then alongside these experts, he also ran these very simple algorithms. Um, like the prevailing trend will continue um, or the dynamic will revert to their long-term mean. And um, so of course, in the short term, what he found is that the, the trend continuing uh, algorithm did very well. And then for longer term predictions, reversion to the mean did very, very well. Um, and both of those systematic methods vastly outperformed the, um, the predictions of the experts. And so that, that coincided with some of the other systematic literature that I've been reading. And, and so there was a positive feedback effect there, I think. That's very interesting because there's, there's, there's an area of study that finds the same thing. And they, uh, I'm going to 
Paul Mead, I think, is the uh, the sort of founding father, most representative, and his his is that uh, uh, simple statistical models outperform experts, including when experts get the benefit of the output of the simple statistical <coughs> models. The, the model acts as the ceiling from which you detract, not the floor which you build on, which is which is fascinating and incredibly salient for investors, particularly quantitative investors. Absolutely. And I just love the um, the story of, oh, what was his name? I'm going to, Greenblatt, right? So Greenblatt writes this book. Um, what's it called? The Little uh, Book That Beats the Market. Little Book That Beats the Market, right? And he's got, and you'll know what the exact specifications are for for his model but it's got something to do with roe and right. and uh and some a, value metric ev right? ev ebit yeah there he you goes go. the yeah. earnings yield yeah 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 so so he's been very successfully using this strategy to manage his hedge fund which has done spectacularly well for you know over a decade we're talking what 25 30 percent annualized returns just something just absurd and uh, so then he shares this this formula with the world, and then he creates this service where he 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 allows people to invest in this model, so they can give him they give the money to this service. And there's two ways that you can take advantage of this service: either you can just let the service run the model for you systematically, so you, obviously you're taking all buys and sells that come that are spit out by the model, or the service will give you the stocks that you need to buy and sell, and then you can go and buy and sell them on your own. And then a few years later, he examined the performance of the accounts that had just allowed the service to run the trades versus the accounts of the investors who'd been given the trades and had to execute on their own. And the accounts that had systematically executed the trades had just vastly outperformed the uh, accounts that had had discretionarily uh, executed the trades, presumably because the the people did not take all of the recommended trades, right? The, you know, they looked at some of the names on the list and were like, "Wow, these are getting a lot of a lot of garbage coverage in the press." Or, you know, hey, there's I, they say I should sell this stock, but you know, look at all the great things it's doing. Look at its earnings growth. Whatever, right? So yeah, they're overlaying their own bias. So this is a perfect it. example of, you know, you, the, the, the system sets the upper limit. And all you can do with your discretion, for the most part, is, is detract from the results. He wrote it up as an article in Morningstar called Adding Your Two Cents Will Cost You a Lot. And what he found was the model over the two years that he tracked it returned 84%. The market did 65%, so it outperformed the market materially. And then the right. average of the accounts that Cherry picked, the discretionary accounts, was like 54%. So they actually underperformed the market and the model. Love it. Yeah. The best discretionary account just bought all of the stocks in the model at the start and then didn't trade for two years and it outperformed. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. I mean, there's just so many examples across so many disciplines, whether you're looking right. at recidivism or um, right. uh, selecting medical, you know, medical students or Wine MBA students that'll complete programs or it's just, Bordeaux. it's overwhelming. Wine vintages. That's right. Yeah. Wine Ca vintages. Countless, yeah. countless different things. So um, 
let's just mo- let's move into what you're doing now. Um, just describe the firm for me, if you would, and, and your the strategies that you guys offer. So the firm is Resolve Asset Management. We were founded in September 2015. We we launched on the back largely of a strategy called adaptive asset allocation. And the thinking that went into that was we we realized soon after the financial crisis that the you know everybody everybody says during financial crises that correlations go to one and we discovered that that's just unequivocally not true right. that, that i would have said that right yeah yeah and and so i mean you probably you probably know this um because i know you but you know we ask this question at conferences all the time we sort of say what was the best performing uh, asset class in 2008 we got all kinds of guesses cash short funds um gold gold yeah right uh, and gold was up a little bit but but yeah treasuries i mean long treasuries, treasuries yeah long treasuries were up 30 percent wow in 2008 30 percent and this is tlt all right and and what's interesting is of course for australian or canadian or or you know, many other foreign investors, you don't just get the uh, the benefit of the move in treasuries, you also get the benefit of the move in the dollar. So, right. so for example, for Canadians, a Canadian who held the TLT ETF long-term treasuries in 2008 would have earned over 60% wow. on that position. Um, so, you know, th- the idea is that there are almost always places to hide and ride out a market crisis, right? It's not always treasuries, as we know, right? The 1970s uh, bonds were highly correlated with stocks and bonds and stocks both did poorly over that over that decade. Uh, but at the same time, commodities and gold both put in uh, double digit compound returns. So, you know, that that sort of understanding crystallized over several years. It wasn't sort of an overnight epiphany. But as we started to, le- to, to learn more about the the precepts of risk parity and all and the all weather concept and what drives asset pricing um then this whole idea took shape but the the initial focus was on asset allocation because that was where we discovered that you were least if you were properly diversified you were least susceptible to the vagaries of you know just being in the market at the at the at the wrong time so just t- talk to us a little bit about Risk parity, um, you're trying to, you're, you're looking at as many asset classes as you possibly can, and you're allocating to those asset classes based on, you're trying to e- e- equilibrate the risk for each, defined as volatility in, in that sense. Yeah, and just just at the highest level of abstraction, the idea is that markets are, assets are predominantly sensitive to two dynamics and those are uh, changes in inflation expectations and changes in growth expectations and so if you have an unexpected change in either expectations for growth or inflation then that change will will impact different asset classes in different ways for different reasons right and so you've got uh, you know, traditional kind of growth assets like 
equities and um, real estate and sometimes commodities. But then equities do particularly well, especially sort of developed equities do particularly well during deflationary growth environments. Um, and uh, whereas commodity-oriented economies or stock markets like emerging markets tend to do well in inflationary growth environments, uh, stagflation, where you've got high inflation and low growth, uh, you typically get really great performance in commodities and gold and tips. And then you've got deflationary busts like the Great Depression in 2008, where you want to rely on things like long-term treasury bonds, cash, and uh, gold, right? So <clears throat> you, you don't know what environment you are going to be going into next or be facing next. And so you just want to have access to all of these different asset classes that are fundamentally designed to do well in, in each of these different quadrants. And then, you know, so, so now that's diversity. You want to have sufficient diversity. And then to your point, you also want to have balance because the problem is you've got emerging market bonds and you've got intermediate treasuries. And so, you know, one of them is is going up and down at one or two percent a day and the other is going down, up and down at, you know, a half percent a day. And so as you accumulate the returns over time for, for these different assets, the returns to emerging markets are going to completely swamp the returns to uh, to intermediate treasuries. Um, so they don't have the the treasuries don't have an opportunity to diversify the stocks. So if you want all these different asset classes to be able to diversify one another, then you've got to scale them to contribute the same amount of risk to the portfolio and how you define risk and how you um, how you equalize risk uh, is is a whole very you know deep conversation. But but at the highest level of abstraction. You just want diversity across all these different macro environments, and you want balance across each of these different um, markets, and that gives you risk parity. And so that, that's <clears throat> the the philosophy that you describe in your your book, uh, adaptive asset allocation. That's the that's what you're driving at, and that's what you're trying to incorporate in the firm. Yeah, I mean that that's sort of the place to start, which is you know you want to have access to a universe of assets that where where at least one of them will be positively exposed to whatever economic environment we are going to face in the future. Um, so that's sort of step one. And, and we use risk parity to help to develop that universe. And then, you know, we describe the optimality conditions for risk parity. In other words, um, under what conditions about relationships between risk and return is the risk parity portfolio mean variance optimal. Um, what, what does mean variance optimal mean? Does it does the risk parity portfolio give you the maximum amount of returns for a target level of risk? Um, and so there's a set of conditions under which that is true. Um, and then so that's a really good starting point. If, if you believe that those conditions are reasonable, a reasonable prior in, in markets, then that's a good place to start. And then if you want to deviate from that, then you better have identified an edge that that gives you confidence in systematically deviating from that risk parity portfolio with an expectation of 
increasing your risk-adjusted performance. Uh, do you deviate? And what are, what are the conditions under which you do that? Yeah, so adaptive asset allocation takes the view that um, markets trend and that they exhibit momentum. And so the idea is to take this diverse universe of asset classes and emphasize those markets with the most positive trends and de-emphasize those markets with the least positive or negative trends. And then, you know, we, the way we describe in the book is those markets that are at the in the top half of the momentum distribution, we just take the minimum variance portfolio of those, um, which is a sort of simple proxy for, for the overall process. Um, so in other words, you just sort of take all those markets that are that have positive momentum and you find the combination, the weights of those markets that minimize total portfolio risk. Um, and that works reasonably well. And then there's other ways that you can use these um, momentum signals and optimizations. And, and then there's lots of ways that you can make the process a lot more uh, stable. Um, but, but that's the general, the general approach. What is uh, Samuelson's dictum and what does it imply? Yeah, I mean, Samuelson's dictum, in, it really is a foundational concept for what we do at Resolve. And, and um, this comes from a letter that Paul Samuelson, famous economist, wrote to Robert Schiller, uh, so two Nobel laureates, um, where he made the, the the assertion that he felt that uh, markets are macro inefficient and micro efficient. And um, what, what does that mean? So it means that at the individual security level that there are there are actors with sufficient capital relative to the size of the the market caps of the securities that they are seeking to arbitrage that they can drive the prices of those securities towards equilibrium. And that the, the there is sufficient cooperation of agents that are, are sufficiently capitalized to create a, a state, a regular state of quasi-equilibrium. So individual securities are probably efficiently priced most of the time. Um, but then why does that break down at a macro level? Why is it macro inefficient? Well, he didn't say, so now we're, I'm, I'm off-roading here, right? But uh, we, we believe it comes down to two reasons um, that generally are broken into um, portfolio agility and um, uh, just flexibility of mandate, right? Mandate flexibility. So these large institutions that are generally in charge of deploying capital, let's think about how they're structured, like a CalPERS uh, uh, or any major pension plan or endowment. So typically, you have an investment committee at the very top um, that is responsible for a policy portfolio, a strategic asset allocation. And in many cases, that strategic asset allocation has to go through an actuary. So the actuary has to say, yeah, based on the historical performance of markets, this portfolio is likely to meet our actuarial objectives, right? And once they put a stamp on that, 
that portfolio is largely static. And the ability for the investment committee to deviate meaningfully to take active risk against that policy portfolio is extremely constrained. So you've got this 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 uh, long-term strategic set of weights that you're going to give to equities, to fixed income, to you know real estate, infrastructure, uh, private investments, et cetera. And so then that money goes to the equity team. And maybe the, this large equity team, maybe some of them are picking individual stocks, but largely they're finding managers that are going to pick individual stocks. Um, they, there's a credit team finds managers who are, you know, picking great credit managers or picking managers that they think can can time duration or, or whatever, right? Um, and they do the same thing with private equity infrastructure, whatever. Uh, but there's nobody at the macro level who's sort of saying, who's even empowered to take active risk across the different asset classes. So you can have, you know, this, you have a situation for a very long period of time where even if the equity sleeve is becoming more and more and more overvalued, there is no facility for the institution to act against that. So, so that's that's one that's one challenge, right? Just the way they're structured, they just don't have the mandate flexibility, and it's not just a large institution. Think about the way that a, a typical retail client portfolio is structured, right? You set a strategic asset allocation that's informed by your either your emotional risk tolerance and your financial risk tolerance and your required return, and then largely that stays put. And if you want to deviate from that, you got to go through your compliance department to deviate meaningfully from that, right? So you have a similar kind of constraint. So there are very few actors in markets that are well capitalized and that also have the mandate flexibility to arbitrage across uh, across markets, right? And then the other, the other challenge is that to sufficiently arbitrage an entire asset class requires far more capital than any any institution has on its own. So, you know, there needs to be a globally coordinated effort to equilibrate the valuations of different asset classes in a way that there doesn't need to be at the individual security level. And so, in our opinion, those barriers to arbitrage are sufficient to preserve very large inefficiencies at the asset class level that may not exist to the same extent at the individual security level. Right. So, um, how should we think about the problem of getting the most information from market edges? <clears throat> well, I think the way I'll tell you what, look, we, we started out even once we sort of decided that we were going to move into the systematic space, once we had discovered the power of diversity and, and balance, we zeroed in on one major edge and, and, and that was trend. Right. I mean, we had a we have a small loading on momentum, but it is primarily trend um, that informed our our adaptive asset allocation strategies for many years. So how did that happen? Well, because we we, we examined uh, the extensive data on all of the known edges in markets, and of all of the edges, the one with with the the largest most persistent edge has been trend. And we've got data on trend 
that goes back, very detailed data that goes back to the 1970s on actual futures markets trading. Then you've got index extensions that go back to the early 1900s. And then you've got other market extensions that go back, you know, Geiserman and Kaminsky in their book go back 800 years on trend. And so, I mean, this is just a, a an omnipresent phenomenon. And now you've got literature coming out, the trend also provides an edge even on factors and alternative premia, um, which we haven't personally investigated, so I can't vouch for. But um, the there was this overwhelming amount of evidence that trend is omnipresent and it it just vastly outperforms all of the other edges uh, in sample. I mean, it's just in order to get uh, literally my plotting app won't even plot trend against the other factors unless I adjust the returns to trend down to incorporate two and 20 fees because the returns are just so extraordinary. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's like an 18% annualized return at a 10% ball going back to 1900. Um, and, and, you know, 10% after two and 20 fees at the same ball. So, you know, we just said this and, and it works across asset classes and we were looking for a factor that works really well across asset classes. So we said, well, this is clearly the winner um, we're going to just make uh, as much use of this single factor as possible. And, you know, can what I, we can saw, I just ask you, you, you just said before you, are you distinguishing trend and momentum? Well, yeah, but I mean, there's, there are ways that you can measure. Are you saying trend in like a trend is in a time series and momentum is in cross-sectional? Is that how you're thinking about yeah, it? Yeah. So, so classically, that's how it's, how it's measured. But imagine, let's imagine this. We've got five different measures of trend. Let's say we've got one month, three, six, nine, and 12 month measures of trend. And we are going to, uh, for, for each time horizon or each trend horizon where a market is in a positive trend, we're going to give it a score of one. For every horizon it's in a negative trend, we give it a score of negative one. And at the end of, you know, we're going to add up the scores, right? So the, any market's going to have a maximum score of five and a minimum score of negative five. Now, and we're going we're gonna to take that score and we're going to feed it into an optimizer. Or we're going to hold the markets in proportion to their score. Is it a trend strategy or is it a momentum strategy? You know, like we're, we're kind of ranking, but we're ranking on the, on the stability of trend. So like it's, I don't know. It's kind of both, right? So, so I will grant you that the classical definition for trend and momentum is cross-sectional um, distribution of returns for momentum and time series, positive or negative for for trend. But there's lots of ways that you can mix and match those, uh, and um, and we do we mix and match a lot, as as I think you know. So it's hard to say that we use either trend uh, or momentum because we kind of just use a combination of both. Um, but, but either way, we did really focus in on this one factor, this trend factor. And we started, you know, really running with trend in late 2011. And if you look at the returns on trend from 2012 to 2019, it has been the worst period for trend <laughs> in the history of trend, right? It's just as bad a period for trend as it's been for you on the value side, if not maybe a little worse. So 
Um, you know, the, the major takeaway there was that as diversified as you think you are, we've got all these different markets, you know, and they're they're designed to do well in very different macroeconomic environments. We are allocating or or emphasizing markets based on uh, the the most widely documented, omnipresent, strongest uh, edge. And still things can go very wrong for a very long period of time. And, you know, so why, last, why do you think that is? Why, well, why, why, why for trend? There's, I, I don't, I don't really know. I mean, there's, um, I personally have a theory that trend, trend is by design, um, a function of investors, uh, overreacting to macroeconomic dynamics, at least at the global macro level, overreacting to macroeconomic dynamics and hurting, um, into assets with strong returns because they're return chasing and they're benchmark uh, focused. Uh, but the current period has been dominated by macroeconomic dynamics that have been unfavorable to powers that have the power to intervene against those trends. So, you know, the the dominant macroeconomic dynamic over the last decade has been deflationary stagnation. And the actions of central banks have been to counteract that natural trend, right? So you have this, this system where you've got the markets uh, move in a direction of deflationary stagnation. The central banks observe that this is taking place they intervene with massive stimulus. It the, the trend rever, macroeconomic trend reverses for a time. The central banks back away. The the dominant macroeconomic environment prevails again, and this cycle has has gone on over and over again. So you've got this situation where the trend begins to develop, just as the the central bankers intervene. This is purely me, and I'm not making excuses. We we had we have the responsibility to to recognize that this is a risk to trend strategies. And so whatever your explanation is or whatever um, uh, you whatever you want to blame for the effect, the, the reality is people have given me their money to compound and I'm making decisions on their behalf and I should be aware of this potentiality. So really what I've learned again <laughs> is the power of humility, right? Um, that you can't just rely on this one factor, no matter how powerful it is. In fact, if anything, I think what I've learned is that the more statistically significant and economically significant a factor has been historically, and especially in the recent period, the more likely it, it will be to be recognized by a very substantial portion of agents who will begin to deploy to that factor and therefore compress the expected returns. So yeah, it's again, the power of, of diversity. Well, let's just talk very quickly. One of the, one of the things that I've learned most from you <clears throat> is this discussion about simplicity and complexity. <clears throat> and so can you just t t tell everybody how you, th how you think about that and what the implications for that are? Yeah, sure. So a, a really simple example is, um, is trend. So, a classic factor trend strategy might own a market if it's above the, the 
10-month moving average uh, or above the 200-month moving 200-day moving average uh, or uh, has exhibited positive returns over the past 12 months um, or the past 252 trading days. Um, but there's no the reality is there's no magic to that, right? Sure, those filters have worked over time, but other ways of defining trend have also worked, like um, markets that have broken out above their 252-day high or their six-month high or, um, you know, a, a double moving average cross, a, a 50-200-day moving average cross or a price to moving average cross or a triple moving average cross or, you know, MACD or whatever. I mean, there's there's an enormous variety of different ways that you can define trend. And if you examine the performance of all of these different um, trend strategies, you find that, you know, sometimes the 5,200 day outperforms, uh, someday the 12 month trend outperforms, you know, time series trend outperforms, uh, all these different trend specifications outperform at different times. And this is enormously powerful because it means that you can allocate to all of these different specifications of trend, which will underperform and outperform at different times and really have the opportunity to just smooth out your expected return trajectory. Now, you know, I think it's reasonable to assume that all of these different specifications are equally valid. If you've got a thousand years to invest, then you're probably going to do about the same using any of these different strategies, just like you know, if, if you're an expert blackjack player and you're gonna and you're gonna sit at a blackjack table and you're gonna play ten thousand games, then you know you're you're probably gonna do just fine. But if you're gonna sit at a table, you've, you're only gonna have a chance to play fifteen or twenty or fifty games. Like a typical investor's got a limited time horizon, right? Then you're better to have a team of players that are going and playing at a variety of different tables all at the same time using basically the same strategy and the results are going to even out over time, right? And if you look at this all, this is all related to ergodicity economics and, you know, geometric versus arithmetic returns. And we want to converge on the arithmetic return, which means you want to minimize your variance. Like there's all kinds of stuff going on here, but the, the underlying principle is simply one of diversification again and being a humble about, whether or not we think we've got the perfect mousetrap for trend or the perfect mousetrap for value or the perfect mousetrap for whatever edge you think that you have in, in, in markets. So then how do you approach, how do you then uh, work out how much you allocate to each of these different trend models? Do you say the one that has performed the best gets a little bit more or do you, do you just say we don't know which one is going to be performing the best over this period of time so we just equal weight? Or do you use that? risk parity approach? Well, it depends on what strategy. I mean, we're, we're launching a strategy um, for uh, some, it's a global equity momentum uh, index that, that um, Corey and Corey at, New, at Newfound and Corey Resolve Hosting. are co-launching. Yeah. Um, and we're just sort of equal weighting a variety of different trend specifications. Uh, you know, we've, we've got models that allow us to determine analytically over a very long, you know, over a long horizon, 
what the correlation should be, for example, between a one-month time series trend specification and a 12-month time series trend specification, or a 12-month time series trend and a 10-month 200 moving average cross trend specification should be. These have actually well-defined analytical correlation relationships that you can use to maximize diversification across the trend specifications. And we do use those internally. Um, but I mean, even just equal weighting them is more advantageous than having to look across all of the different trend strategies uh, or trend specifications historically and say which one of them has outperformed in sample. I mean, that we just wrote a paper on this global equity momentum concept. And um, you probably know uh, Gary Antonacci, who I'm a big fan, and he's, he's a, a great guy and a smart guy. And he I wrote a paper in, in 2012 on this idea of dual momentum. And one of the strategies was uh, where you want to be invested uh, in equities, subject to the fact that equities are in a positive trend. And then if equities are in a positive trend, then you want to be in either U.S. equities or international equities, depending on which one of those has um, the highest momentum. And he defined trend and, and momentum based on the 12-month the return, right? Which is a perfectly valid specification. And if you look back to 1950, uh, that strategy has performed very, very well, right? But what's interesting is that the original study that he did in 2012 used monthly data from 1974 to 2011. And he used the 12-month approach. And he showed the 12-month approach was good. And then he, he expanded it. He got new data and he expanded it back to 1950 and then from 2011 to, I don't know, 2018 or 17 or something, right? So, so which is great because now we have an out-of-sample um, uh, uh, sample, right? And so what's interesting is you've got this specification that worked the, worked the best from 1974 to 2011. And then if you look at that, the performance of that specification, that 12-month specification, on the period from 1950 to 1973 and from 2012 to 2018, what you find is that that strategy performs about at about the median of all of these other different trend specifications, which is exactly what you'd expect if your prior belief is that all of these different trend specifications are equally valid, right? If they're all equally valid, then over the long run, they're all going to converge to the median. Right. But what's great about it is that they all have the same expected return, but they're not perfectly correlated to one another. So when you put them all together, you get the same expected return, but you get a lower volatility. And so that means you've got, you know, over any rolling five year period, the expected tail loss is much smaller if you use the ensemble of all of them than if you use any single specification. Your expected maximum drawdown is smaller. Um, your expected ratio goes up. Is 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 smaller. Like there's all these benefits just from ensembling all these different all these different methods. So that leads to so your portfolio construction. <clears throat> sure. Yeah. And and um, so there's there's a couple of different steps, right? The one is well, what edges or alpha sources or what have you um, do you think have merit? and uh, are sustainable and have produced 
economically economically significant marginal sharps uh, over some sufficient horizon and you know across different markets and and over different time periods um, and so now we've got this set of preferential edges we have some confidence in and uh, so how are you going to uh, weight those edges well what's so interesting is that this if you've got a, a, a strategy with a sharp ratio of around, call it a sharp ratio of one, which is very high, but a strategy with a sharp ratio of one, you've got 30 years of data on that. The standard error of the sharp ratio around one is about 0.25. So your 95% confidence interval is, you know, somewhere around 0.6 and 1.4, right? And so if you've got a a strategy with 30 years of history that's got a sharp ratio of 0.7 and another strategy over 30 years of history that has a sharp ratio of 1.3. Well, we, we statistically can't say that they are different. They come from different distributions, right? So, you know, statistically we sort of have to say, well, no, you know, they, they have the same expected sharp ratio. So they're equally legitimate. And so, you know, that, even that's though one how, is almost double the other. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Because of the you know the error term is just very large, and 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 even worse, you know even if they come from different different distributions, that difference may not manifest over a time horizon that matters to investors. You know the Dalbar study of investor behavior has a lot of flaws, but I think one of the things that we can rely on is their data on the holding periods for different uh, classes of investments and. I haven't looked at it in a while, probably in three or four years, but I don't think these behaviors change very often by very much. But I think the average holding period for uh, an investor in an equity mutual fund is, call it three and a half years. The average holding period for a bond fund is maybe four years, and for a multi-asset fund, like a balanced fund, is four and a half years. So you know, even if your time horizon is 30 years, most people's emotional time horizon is four or five years. And I think if you were to if you were to look at, at alternative investments, that that time horizon is even shorter because people just don't understand them and they don't have the same level of confidence. And so, you know, it's it's not that your strategy needs to work over the very long term. It has to work over a, a time horizon that investors will stick with, right? So, you know, really, you've got to sort of kind of run bootstrap returns on combining these different edges over three and five year horizons to see whether or not you should uh, distinguish between them. Right. And so that really makes you humble because you just, you discovered that there's, you know, there's a lot of edges that, that are kind of have equal merit and over three to five year horizons, you kind of want to own some portion of all of them because it just leads to a maximum probability of success over horizons that investors are going to stick with. Right. Um, and then there's this whole portfolio optimization problem, which of course we, we spend a lot of time on, uh, as well. And, and is a whole different rabbit hole. Well, let's, let's just talk very quickly about retirement analysis. Um, you've identified some issues with <clears throat> the typical retirement models. Yeah, actually I've been, uh, I, I spent a lot of time on retirement modeling uh, earlier in my career, back in sort of 07, 08, uh, working on some of the models that Moshe Malevsky had proposed um, with his uh, 
um, retirement uh, safe withdrawal rates without um, distribution, or sorry, without uh, resampling. And so he had this inverse gamma distribution. You can sort of model this all uh, analytically rather than having to run a bunch of uh, simulations. Um, but sadly, what that misses is that the the markets do not conform to the type of process that is well described by his analytical uh, solution. So, you know, I've just come back to this because uh, I've been working on something with um, Andrew Miller, who I, I think you know, Andrew, uh, um, who's an advisor in Indianapolis, um, and who's obviously thought a great deal about this problem. And so he was doing a bunch of modeling, and and we started talking, and then I, I started thinking about this. And it was it's it's good timing because over the last three four years, we really started to incorporate a lot of machine learning thought process um, in how we think about the problem of portfolio construction, and. Part of that is this idea of um, of ensembling or, or sort of block bootstrapping. And so, you know, when, when you come back to this process of retirement modeling and you think about it from the perspective of trying to capture all of the important dynamics in markets. So, for example, a 60-40 portfolio, it's not like a 60-40 portfolio has this completely random um, return trajectory through history. Rather, what happens is you've got kind of a 20-year horizon where 60-40 has zero real returns, followed by a 20-year horizon where it has 16% real returns, followed by another 20 years of zero and another 20 years of 16. And so it's really sort of a feast or famine type of process. And so the the uh, any sort of Monte Carlo that assumes that those returns are are randomly distributed, are independent, independent and identically distributed through time, are failing to capture that, and and therefore it is overstating the probability of retirement success pretty substantially. And if you go back and apply, for example, a, a block bootstrap of 60/40 returns back to the 1920s, even for a U.S. 60/40, which is biased massively upward. I mean, if you think about the U.S. equity return premium uh, is a little over 6%. The equity premium XUS is about 3.5%. <laughs> so the, the global equity return premium is kind of just a little over 4%, not including fees or taxes or anything like that, right? So the U.S. case massively overstates the expected premium, in our opinion. But even using US 6040, if you simulate the return process, capturing the autocorrelation dynamics of you know, stocks and bonds through history, your safe withdrawal rates actually come down quite a bit. So just working on how to apply you know, that, that new thinking or new way of thinking about retirement modeling, and then the impact of adding alternative return sources like trend or you know like uh, diversified factor portfolios um, in terms of increasing safe withdrawal rates and using this this new simulation process has been has been a lot of fun so what what does that indicate that the alternatives are what do you do instead well I mean it can, it can be as simple as uh, adding trend it can be you can get a little bit more fancy uh, and think about 
diversified style premia. I mean, like the AQR style premia fund or the uh, BlackRock total factor fund, for example, these sort of diversified global style premia uh, allocations. Um, you can branch out and get even further into the weeds with hedge funds, um, you know, like a Bridgewater type allocation or what have you. Um, but I mean, the reality is the more diversified sources of returns that you add to the portfolio, the less likely you are to encounter a series of very negative contiguous returns. Right. So it's, it's this, these long periods of drawdown that so derail your retirement outcomes, right? And so, you know, if you can just minimize the probability of those, those long U-shaped negative uh, market environments, then you can very substantially increase your expected safe withdrawal rate. I mean, some of the, um, some of the numbers, you, you get sort of a 25 to 50% improvement in, in safe withdrawal rates, which is pretty, pretty, uh, pretty profound. Uh, that's coming up on time. Uh, if folks want to get in contact with you or follow what you do, um, how do they go about doing that, Adam? Investresolve.com. Um, you'll find uh, our firm website. We've got a blog that we've been running for, wow, I think I started that in 09. When did you start Greenback? December 2008. Wow. Yeah. So I think I started a month after you. I think I started January 2009. And um, so there's lots of articles on there and it really traces the evolution of uh, of our thinking. And it's not just my own thoughts. It's the uh, the aggregated thinking and learning of of um, of our partners and, you know, guys like you, who we have the opportunity to talk to all the time. Uh, so definitely check out the blog. And then we've got a bunch of papers and um, and uh, podcasts and all that kind of stuff on the website, too, that you can poke through. And you're on Twitter at in Gestalt U, G E S T A L T U. Yep. One of the one of the better Twitter accounts to follow. Yeah, I'm feeling a little curmudgeonly, but I'm 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 trying to trying to come off a little bit more friendly. Trying to cut down. Adam Butler, thank you very much. It's a pleasure, Toby. I'm sad, you know, our our guys are going to be out in California there in mid July. So I'm sad I'm, I'm going to miss that, but um, looking forward to the next time we get together and, uh, and have a pint. Likewise. Thank you.